Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to episode 540 with my guest, Diane Sherry Case. I am Paul Gilmartin, and you are listening to the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the bullshit in our heads, and there is a lot of... Maybe I'm wrong about you, but I know I got a lot of bullshit rattling around in in my head, Uh, and this is a place to be honest about it. Not meant to be a treatment for mental conditions, doesn't replace therapy, I'm not a therapist. Look, I'm barely a human being, but I am trying my best. So back off. Somebody emailed me, and asked how much time needs to pass before the surveys reset. I'd love to do some more surveys. It's my way of supporting the show. But three out of the five that I attempted today sent me to a page that reads, you have already taken this survey. I'm so glad that you alerted uh, alerted me to that. I have gone in and reset it so you can take all uh, of the surveys multiple times. and that is a good way to support the show. The surveys are a big part of this. I love reading uh, about the variety of experiences that you guys have. And uh, it seems like when people can open up anonymously, they really uh, they really let loose. This is from the Fear survey filled out by CJ. And she writes, I fear that if I don't take every opportunity that comes to me, I'll regret it. I obsessively worry that I'll reach age milestones and wish I had done more. I fear voicing my wants and needs. I'm in a fantastic relationship, but I would really love to pursue my career, which would involve moving away, and I worry that distance will hurt us. So I shove it down, uh, that a girl, and stay because I'm happy. I guess the issue is that I can't decide between definite relationship happiness and taking a risk, but part of me always feels a bit unsatisfied every day that this goes on, and I don't know what to do. I fear that I will spend my time worrying, and at some point I'll realize it was all for nothing and I didn't need to be so hard on myself. What a 
what a great share. And I know a lot of people can make long-distance relationships work. That's one of the things my, my therapist um, shared with me is uh, there, there's been an evolution in the last couple of years or even the last decade where more and more people um, are deciding to live separately or even live in different cities and they can have satisfying uh, relationships. Obviously, everybody's different, but about the worrying thing, that somebody uh, was a uh, end-of-life uh, nurse, uh, a hospice nurse, and so she spent a lot of time with people in the last weeks of their life. And the one thing that they all said is that they wish they had worried less. And uh, God, I wish I could worry less. It just, it's like breathing. Worrying is like breathing. But um, thank you for sharing that. I, I think there's a lot of people that can relate to the the worry part of that. We are sponsored this week, as always, by BetterHelp.com Online Therapy. Um, my therapist, Donna, been with her for a couple of years, and uh, she's helped me with cognitive behavioral therapy. You know, one of the things I always say to myself when I start worrying about something, my worry of the day, is what are the facts on the ground? And that usually helps kind of recenter me and remind me that uh, the catastrophizing muscle in my brain is just looking for some kind of input. So if you're interested in trying online therapy, uh, go to BetterHelp.com dot com uh, slash mental make sure you include the slash metal if you would that way they know you came from this podcast and then if they have a therapist that they feel is good fit for you they'll match you up with one and you can experience a free week of counseling to see if it's your thing and you need to be over 18 this is from the love survey filled out by mia and she writes i love walking when i have a lot of energy and it doesn't feel like an effort to move my legs at all. Instead, I feel like I'm floating, like the universe is moving along with me at the exact same speed and there's no gravity pulling at my body. Wow, that is such a great one. I've felt like that before after getting like an alignment or having a really good meditation. It's almost like you're, you're made of water. You just feel like a noodle. I love the smell of cinnamon. I love walking home late at night when it's dark and lip-syncing to the music I'm listening to through my earphones. I love it when I say or do something stupid or wrong, and instead of losing myself in self-hatred, I can wholeheartedly laugh about it. That is an awesome one. I love the little frown on my boyfriend's forehead when he's still mostly asleep but trying really hard to wake up. I love when I've cleaned my apartment and I feel like a proper adult who's got their life under control. I love when on the podcast, Paul reads a spam email he's received, all seriously, because it cracks me up every single time. Thank you for that. I love when I imagine the future, and I don't feel scared, but excited, because it can't get worse than it has been, and there's still so many wonderful things to come. 
I just wanted to get the fuck away from my life. You know, I, I couldn't have felt any lower. Grief, guilt, shame. Why wasn't I born a girl? There is a switch that gets flipped in my head. I'm supposed to be a girl. I experience being treated like an animal. How can a just God... I have a vomit fetish. Let humans do this to each other. Help! I fucking flew over the cuckoo's nest. My wife's losing it. I thought it was all about me. I don't know what to do. I would have committed suicide if I could have watched my funeral. A Polaroid I found of my mother um, naked in a dentist chair. And my body doesn't quite... I think I did eight days in L.A. County Jail. ...fit how I see myself. What was it all for? Why are my friends dead? Everything that I did, there's a comfort in the scars for me, was in service of OCD. You've already had all the paper cuts. Step away from the paper. It's really hard to see the picture when you're inside the frame. You know, it takes a larger view to see your life. Just actually have somebody listen to you. Yeah. And I got up and got my tooth and left. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here with Diane Sherry Case, uh, and I got sent something from your uh, publicist that uh, I thought was really interesting. And I was like, I would like to hear more about this. You uh, go into prisons and you teach inmates the power of writing in processing their emotions. I have indeed done that. How? I want to know what led you, A, what led you to doing that. So I want some background on you as much as you're comfortable sharing. Okay. Um, and uh, and then I want to hear about that. Well, so, uh, you're from where? I'm from the South, but I grew up in Los Angeles. Okay. And um, I was teaching in private, a private school. And uh, it was a class. It just happened to be all girls, I think. It wasn't a girls' school. but And I saw, I was just te teaching writing, and I saw how the exercises were bringing things up and, and they were healing. Actually, they were writing uh, things that, sometimes it scared me. I actually had to consult a therapist at one point which is one of the reasons I ended up going to graduate school for psychology and getting really? a graduate. Yeah, because I, I realized the writing was so powerful that I had to watch out. Does this mean the person is suicidal or does it mean they're just getting it out of their system? Wow. So that was kind of alarming to me. But I did... So what, what did you find out? Well, I found out that they were okay. You know, I checked, I, I checked in with the parents and did everything you're supposed to do, touched all the bases. But what I found out doing it is that if I designed the exercises, I was using creative writing exercises that you learn in graduate school, because I already had a degree in creative writing and in writer's conferences and stuff. So I was using the type of prompts that writers use to free them up and get the flow going. For instance? For instance, um, just, just little exercises like write... Write a story about a man alone in a room with a plant or a person alone in a room with a plant. I love being given creative constraints like that because to me, the most paralyzing thing sometimes about creativity is which choice do I make? And the fewer choices you have, the easier it is. At least for me, but go exactly. ahead. Exactly. It gives you a framework and structure yeah. and freedom within that. And it, it kind of alights, a, a is it a light? No, it, it wakes up your creativity and yeah. kind of inspires you. Yeah. 
Um, but I realized that I could take like a similar prompt and make it geared towards healing. Uh, say the man's alone in the room with the plant, but there's two doors. And outside of one of them is something frightening. And outside of another is the future. And write about both. Wow. And then you have a more, you know, a, a, an exercise that kind of gets into your subconscious and uh, is not only creative, but it's also kind of helps you work through some things and realize some things. My goal, a lot of it is to get people to write faster than they think and bypass their intellect Yes. so that they surprise themselves. Yes. And one of the ways, I always give the instruction to, uh, when we're doing the kind of writing exercises I give, to not worry about punctuation or spelling or even full sentences. Almost like you're writing a grocery list. Yes. just uh, And I use lists, too. I'll yeah. say, write a list of the smell, your favorite smells, or write a list of, you know, the things you like best about yourself, or write a list of of the lists you want to make. And then, you know, because that's, you know, journaling, people always, therapeutic writing is known to be uh, healing. But it's always, all the studies have been done on journaling alone. And people tell you to just go off and journal. And sometimes that's not enough. Sometimes it gets to be more of a job than a journey. Yeah, sometimes it's like reporting. Which uh -huh. I think can be um, a little, um, I don't know. And, and sometimes I think there's this thought of, well, what if somebody reads this? I, maybe I need to adjust that a little bit so it's presentable if somebody yeah. were, to, were to read it. Um, but I've done both where I journal, you know, as if it's going to be read, and then where it's just stream of consciousness. What no matter what it is that that comes up, just writing it down and getting it out, and writer's cramp for ten minutes, just boom, 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 and it's it it introduces you to what's really going on. It does. It really does, and you surprise yourself, right? You I did. go like, "Wow, I didn't know I was thinking or feeling or yeah, I didn't know that was in me." One one of the first profound insights I had into my relationship with my parents was because of um, something I wrote in a creative writing class. And I don't know if I consciously said I'm going to not plan what I'm writing. I'm just going to let it come out and I'll just steer it as it goes. Um, because when I tried planning something, it was just, it was, you know, it, too clever for its own good. Exactly. It had no soul. And so I wrote this thing about a boy and his grandfather uh, walking um, at night in a park. And they came upon like a cave or something that they entered. And it was just this big, long maze. And at the end of it, they are um, there are cameras and they are being seen by everybody and his parents who he feels disconnected from are watching and are happy and the grandfather dies and it was all stuff that subconsciously 
I felt like my parents were more interested in TV than they were me. Wow. And I wanted to be on TV, and I mourned never having a grandfather figure Mm -hmm. in my life. But I didn't realize any of those things until I wrote it, and I went, oh, my God. That's That's what therapeutic writing is? Yeah. And that's that's why I love to do these exercises as opposed to telling people to just journal, because you do get to surprising places and that's the thrill of that not only having psychological realizations then the healthiness of that uh the healing powers of that but just the the awakening your creativity you know what i mean it's just the spark it's exciting let's give uh listeners who are interested in doing this give them one and then we'll have them um Send you know what? Maybe we'll create a survey that they can they can write and and post it on. Um, that would be interesting. So what would a what would a good um, prompt be? I have one called it's called a gift from nature. You take anything you want from nature and decide who you want to give it to. It can be to somebody you love. It can be to yourself as a show of self love. Or it could be to somebody you're angry with. And in that instance, the exercise serves to help with forgiving. So you can pick a a sunset or a rose or a wave or a lightning bolt. It doesn't Mm -hmm. have to be positive or beautiful. And write down why you chose this gift for this particular person. And then what it feels like to give it to them. And how they receive it. And are you, is the person, are you face to face with the person when you give it to them or is that up to you? Yes, that's up to you. Okay. That's in the free rule. And is it up to you as to whether or not that person knows it came from you? Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. I have another one. I can give you another short one that I think is great for journaling every day. I just realized I'm going to give uh, my fifth grade teacher a tsunami. <laughs> I love it. I was I was writing at one time and I was starting with I wanted to give my mother a rose and somehow and it was about forgiveness. I was doing it, it for a process of forgiveness, but somehow I got to the thorns and it just didn't end up. Good. As, 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 as loving as I had intended it to begin all loving. Wow, that's pretty uh, <laughs> illuminating because if you're being honest with yourself, you're like, you know what? There's a part of me that still wants to slap her. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So I was going to give you one called Savor the Moment. Mm-hmm. And what you do, and this is a mind, this creates more mindfulness in your life because what you do is you pick a moment in your day. It can be just like when we said hello out on the street and it was kind of happy. Or you 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 smile at a clerk, somebody mm-hmm. lets you in in traffic, you see a dog, a child laughing or something, or a dog playing. And savor that moment in writing. Use all your senses, you know, what did you see, feel, smell, think, you know. Um, and uh, just spend five minutes with it because if you do that, you'll find that there are moments in every day, even the worst possible day, that are pleasurable or pleasant or, you know, make you feel good, feel good moments. 
I completely agree. We have a, a survey on the website called Happy Moments, and some of my favorite ones are ones that are really sublime, that are not dramatic, but it's that person being present in the midst of what they think is, you know, a horrible day. Uh-huh. They're able to just get present and realize that there's beauty all around them. Yeah, and there's also chaos and a bunch of other stuff, but... um Stop and smell the roses. Stop and smell the roses. Who cares that a bus is going to hit you while you're doing it? Yeah. You didn't sound, <laughs> you didn't sound on board with that joke. Um, oh, uh, I also want to uh, mention, we'll mention it again at the uh, end of the uh, conversation, but um, you got a book coming out in January. And I don't know if this interview is going to come out before or after that, but it's called Right for Recovery, Exercises for Heart, Mind, and spirit, and we'll put a link to that on our uh, on our website. So, what I was going to say about that, doing little exercises like that in your journal, is that there's something that worries me about journaling too. Because if you've had trauma and stuff, it can be just a place to complain. And I think it's good to do that for five or ten minutes and get all your stuff out, or for however long. And if you've had a trauma, to write about it in detail, but not to do it over and over because that embeds the the negative. It's good to get it out of your system, but you don't want to keep dwelling on it. It's one of the reasons too why I think support groups are so helpful because when you do share your story and you see that you are connecting to other people and they either. Um, are expressing love and um, affection for you and sympathy and empathy. Um, Sometimes your story is like their story and you realize on a profound level you're not alone. And that can be so cathartic, so cathartic. Absolutely. It's really uh, when we do workshops, we share Sometimes people, I really always tell people to write as though you're going to tear it up or throw it away or not, you know, but, but it is, if you choose to share it with somebody, it's really healthy. Otherwise, if it's something, you know, you might want to tear it up or burn it. That's, that's one that I've uh, heard before is, um, a little ritual, a ritual. Yeah. If it's a parent or somebody that's no longer alive, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, write what you wanted to say, uh, and go to the gravesite and burn it. Yeah. Um, so uh, we gave them a uh, an exercise to do. Yes. Right? The, Some, uh, give them something from the give somebody from some, nature. A gift from nature. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so back to your uh, growing up. Hmm. You can just give us broad strokes. You know, if you're not comfortable sharing too much. Well, I was, a, I was a child actor. I fell in love with acting when I realized I could express things in, in my work that I couldn't express in my home life, like anger. <laughs> How was anger met uh, at home? I, it was not okay. It just wasn't okay. So, um, you know, I, I've, I've always used art as a survival mechanism. I don't think I would be here if I hadn't been, if I hadn't had the resiliency that came from being creative um, and using that. Uh, what do you want to know about my childhood? <laughs> Whatever you're comfortable sharing. 
Well, ask me a question. I'm pretty good sharing every, anything. But what are some <clears throat> some moments from your childhood that were profound for you, negatively or positively? Obviously, the one uh, discovering acting was a way to uh, express emotions you couldn't at home is a profoundly positive one. Uh, what are some ones that um, maybe were deeply wounding or invalidating or? Um, well, I uh, my parents had believed in uh, uh, physical punishment, and that was kind of rotten. I, but they did it because that's what they believed in at the time. It was kind of a sign of the times. Um, I I also it was as a young child. I started acting when I was about ten or eleven, and you know, me too. <laughs> uh. So, uh, you know, by the time I was 12, 13, 14, there were a lot of creepy men in the business. So I've, you know, I've been through, um, I've been through a lot. Yeah. Well, thank you for, for sharing that. I ran away from, uh, um, show business, a successful career and joined a circus in Mexico when I was 20. Seriously? <laughs> And got kidnapped and <laughs> had some adventures. Oh, my God. Um, were there things that uh, you were on uh, TV that we might recognize you from? I was the first superhero's first girlfriend is my most, uh, my, my most uh, important five-minute claim to fame. I was Superman's, uh, I was Lana Lang in the first Superman and what what year was was that? I don't want to say. <laughs> it was a long time ago. It was the first one with Christopher Reeve and Marlon Brando. Oh yeah! Oh, the movie. Yeah, and the amazing special effects that are. It's a phenomenal yeah. movie if you ever get to see it in a in a in a live theater because not live yeah. theater but in a theater because yes. the special effects were real. It was before computer generated images and. Mm. It's just it was it's in the National Registry of Film this year. Yeah. And it's a classic. It's like I'm really proud of it. Yeah. It's like The Wizard well, of Oz or something. That's a big that's a big moment. Yeah. To have been in been in that. Um any anything else that you'd like to mention? Well, you know, I'm not I'm not asking for your resume. I just don't want to <laughs> blow it off and move on. I played G Julie Andrews' sister in a film. I played Bing Crosby's daughter in a TV series. I What was uh, he like? He was fabulous. Well, to me, I heard he was terrible to his kids, but mm -hmm. I got to meet the Beatles because of him. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> You're not going to swear on radio. No, on no, this, a podcast. This, oh, yeah. We swear on podcasts. <laughs> we swear on podcasts. You're free to say whatever you want. Oh, shit uh, you say. That's that's right. <laughs> uh, I am a Beatles nut. So every detail you can include. I want to hear it. Well, before I leave, I'll show you the picture. You, I, I might um, steal it from you. It was my favorite day of my, one of my favorite days of my life. I was so excited. And I I had seen him. He Bing had also gotten me front row center tickets at the Hollywood Bowl the night before. And then there was a garden party the next day. So I brought the program and I had a letter from Bing to give to them, which they were thrilled about because they were big fans of his. Yeah. And uh, Paul said, you have hair just like my girlfriend. And I was so 
just beside myself. He was dating Jane Asher at yes. the time, right? And I was so I'm a redhead. I was so beside myself that I forgot to get my pro I forgot to get their autographs. But thank goodness somebody was taking somebody from Capitol Records, they had a photo thing set up, so I got photos with each one of them. Oh my god. And I don't know how that survived all my moves and all the floods and all the forgetting to pay my storage space when I was young and everything else. But somehow I found the Beatle pictures 10 years ago so or so. So I'm going to guess this is probably like 65, 66? Yeah, the first trip to the U.S. I was about 12. Wow. Wow. I can't wait to, I can't wait. In fact, uh, <laughs> well, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm the only person related to this show that is that crazy about the Beatles, but... Um, it would be, uh, you know, it would be cool for the monthly donors. Um, we'll, uh, on the on the Patreon site, we'll post your Beatles pictures if you're cool with that. Okay, that'd be great. All right. Um, so the, uh, the show business uh, thing. Um, I stopped I, when I had kids. Okay. So you worked a lot. Yeah, I did. You, Actually, you, I did a lot of commercials. I did a couple of Super Bowl commercials, and I did a ton of commercials. Boy, do those pay if you hit the right I, one. They did. They used to. Yeah. I don't know about anymore. And then all the celebrities started uh, elbowing people out of the way and mm -hmm. did, doing them. How does show business look through the eyes of a child who is just beginning it versus the eyes of somebody who is leaving it when they're an adult? Well, obviously, disappointment and, <laughs> and uh, uh, you know, um, a lot of bubbles being burst. But I guess I'd like to hear what some of those bubbles are. Um, it's just a hard business. It's it's a lot of rejection. Everybody knows. And uh, it's rough on women. You know, you in my day, you were retired by the time you were 30, it's gotten older now and, and older women are working. But Ron Howard was a, a contemporary of mine. Uh, uh, um, I worked with him when I was a kid and I wanted to be a director when I was a young, a young kid. And I would get, you know, I remember getting 19 kids together to direct a play and stuff. And if I, you know, that's one thing that I look back on, I don't know, it doesn't really answer your question, but no, this if is, I, I had I'm been, interested a, in this. I have directed, I've directed several shorts and I have a sitcom on, uh, uh, called House Poor on Amazon, um, that I directed, but, um, I didn't get a chance for a directing career because I didn't, it didn't, it didn't seem like women did it and they didn't in fact. And it's just now getting a little better, you know? Yeah. It's it's taken so long. It's such a sexist business. It's kind of phenomenal in this day and age to, to yeah. realize that two women directed major features last year or something. I don't, I don't know the real stats, but something ridiculous. Two yeah. out of 200 or five out of 200. Uh, as you think back to that time when it wasn't even on your radar that that was a possibility, does it... Do you feel anger? Do you feel sadness? Do you, what do you, what do you, uh... Yeah, I'm, I'd like to do it in my next lifetime. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it is what it is, you know. Yeah. 
acceptance. That is <clears throat> one of the biggest pieces of life's puzzle is yeah. surrendering to what is, that you, the stuff you can't change. And mm-hmm. I think there's such a myth in our culture, especially, that that means you're weak if you surrender. Yeah, no. Acceptance is the name of the game. It's... Uh, I'm, I'm another thing getting back to journaling to do, because I was just about to say how grateful I am and what a fulfilling life I have and have had. And, uh, so acceptance is cool. But one of the things that helps you get there is a gratitude list too, Mm -hmm. daily gratitude list. I just want to throw that out there. That's a great one. Um, writing fears out is a, Mm -hmm. is a really good one. And I like to do this. You can do that in a list. Yeah. Um, that, that's how I do it. I do it in a list. And in fact, sometimes, um, guests and I will trade, uh, either improvised or otherwise we'll trade, we'll go back and forth listing fears of ours and then loves of ours. And, Excellent. Yeah. And I was going to offer an 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 antidote. Yes. You got to finish you with the, do the, the, the fear, the, 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 the thing that makes you feel good yeah. the thing that makes you feel safe, things yeah. that make me feel comfortable and safe. I also have an exercise about a safe place where you create a safe place for yourself, whether it be imaginary or remembering, you know, grandma's front yard or whatever, and uh, really describe it so that that you can go there. Mm-hmm. I had one, like, I was 15, and my, it was so clear in my head what I wanted it to be, and it's so fucked up now that I look back and it's kind of sad but it was I wanted somebody to create a plexiglass bubble that you could breathe in and it would be like the size of of a small room Um, almost like uh, you remember in I Dream of Jeannie you look down into the bottle and she had that Uh circular couch with all the pillows it would be like that but it would be a perfect clear sphere and it would be chained um, or a, a pole uh, stuck into the ocean floor and it would be during a raging storm in the ocean and and it would be impervious to damage but I would get to see it all wash over me and the dream was that I would get to I would be able to be there alone and get high <laughs> <laughs> no interruptions no interruptions that was that was like my my dream um so getting back to the um the journaling thing um you we we kind of wrapped up the the whole show business thing um right yes okay. and we kind of lost our train of thought when we I was talking about transitioning from the private schools to the prisons did you want to yes. go there or did you have someplace else you yes to go? i just wanted to get a backstory so uh i think a lot of times it kind of adds to somebody's story if we know a little bit about them as they're describing things and also because sometimes then maybe i'll have a question i wouldn't have had if i didn't know a little bit about your about your background Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe I'm just, I have OCD when it comes to chronology. No, I got off the subject. Yeah. I was having, I was oh, having fun talking. <laughs> I, I am, uh, the, the king of going off on a tangent that doesn't come back and <laughs> pissing people off, pissing myself off when I sit down to edit it. I'm like, Oh, <laughs> so, um, 
what then got you and you you did creative writing you uh discovered when you were teaching uh these girls that there was something there you went and you got your uh psychology degree uh and then then what well i had already been taking these exercises these creative writing exercises and tweaking them to to be useful and uh before you got your psychology yes, did you get your and, masters or what my get? masters in psychology okay. And I trained for uh, a year and then uh, uh, decided I liked teaching this better than doing being a therapist. Um, but somebody had asked me to go teach at the prison. At a, a, it was a youth uh, facility. I, I haven't done that lately, but it was uh, a few years ago. It was a youth facility for 15-year-old um, kids that had been convicted of felons. And uh, they had, they had, each of them had already had two felons, so they were worried that they were going to be, you know, in the prison for the rest of their life. And they because of the three strikes law. Yeah, at the time they've changed that, but at the time it even applied to youth. The three strikes. I don't know what the law is now, but I know it's not the same as it was. It's not as harsh as it was. But these kids were in jeopardy of being. And and even if it wasn't for that, just once you're, you know, dug in and... In the institutional system. In and the you, institutional system, and you've committed a few couple of felonies, and it starts looking bad, it's... And then that's all your role models mm -hmm. with great plans for when you get out. Here's, here's what I'm going to do. Yeah. These, it was... It was such an experience because what I, I didn't ask what the kids individually were in for, but I asked what generally it was. And most of them, uh, this particular population, it was sex crimes. I don't know how common that is. Hmm. But, and then I just, I got, became really attached to all the kids. They were really sweethearts. And what I realized from their writing is they had all been abused as children. So whatever crimes they were committing were, you know, there was a cause and effect there. And what was amazing was seeing them discover the cause and effect for the first time. Sometimes really? they hadn't put two and two together. Wow. Can you share any, um, obviously you're not going to name particular names, but any st stories that, you, know, that you recall that... One story really touched me that, I, I don't know, there... Um, it was a young kid. This is just a random story, and it has no real uh, moral or anything. But he had um, his his parents had died, and he, he was alone with his grandmother, and she couldn't leave the house. She was disabled, and so he was three or four years old, and was selling. It was in Mexico, and he was selling newspapers on the street. You know how they sell them between at stoplights and run mm -hmm. up to cars. And his story was about how scared he was to get hit by a car because he was so short. Just little touching details like that in their lives that they hadn't that they hadn't really told anybody. Yeah. Secrets are not good, and even getting them on paper. Like I told the kids, they didn't have to share their writing, and I discussed with the school that that wasn't going to be used against them so that they can feel free to write anything they want. But just even getting it out on paper, even if you don't, if you read it to somebody, that's really great. Um, but even if you don't, it, 
and it gets you out of denial. So it, it keeps you from harboring something. It gets you out of denial. It helps you kind of process it. You can feel the feelings. And it was really powerful. It was amazing that, you know, these kids that had, had done these awful things were so lovable. And uh, it was quite an experience. I want to do it again. I really, I'm, I'm, it's, you know, sometimes it's really hard to get a volunteer job because uh, it's sometimes hard to get into these organizations. I want to teach um, homeless youth. That's one of my goals for the New Year's. That would be great. Yeah, to work with homeless youth. It's a population I'm interested in, particularly LGBT. Yeah, there's a, there's definitely a need for more resources. Um, when you consider uh, the suicide rate is like above 40%. 40%, yeah. That's, I, mean, that's, I really would like to work with that population. Um, I know uh, a couple of therapists that work uh, with that population that I could put you in touch with. And they Fabulous. might be able to... Um, steer you in the right direction. Fabulous. Yeah. I'm putting, you know, I'm doing these workshops. I'm doing these online workshops and stuff. And so I'm selling it, but I also want to give it away. Yeah. Uh, speaking of writing exercises, um, I, I talked about uh, writing fears out. And one of the things that I found really unmasks the black and white thinking, which can corrode our lives, is writing a fear down. And then saying, okay, if that fear were to come true, then what am I afraid is going to happen? And keep doing that with the fear. And you'll realize that in your brain, you are catastrophizing the exactly. smallest things. And you can begin to see how ridiculous our, our uh, just ping-ponging thoughts are every day and that they're, they're not reality. Yes, it's so true. I talk a lot about the different, um, or, or some about the different things, catastrophizing, uh, uh, you know, re mind reading, the different weird things we do that are not useful and not real uh, in were, the book. Were most of those uh, kind of just blunt coping tools developed as kids to survive? Yes, I think talk, so. Talk some more about that, if you would. First of all, I want to tell you another writing exercise because yeah. I thought you were going there for some reason with this. Uh, when you were talking about your fears, one really fun thing is to think if you could have any superpower you wanted to write about it and what you would do with it. That's a great one. So that might be a fun one. Maybe that's a better one for your... Uh... That is a great one. Yeah, I like that. Um yeah, so we'll, I'll I'll create a survey and maybe I'll put both of those up okay. there. Um, okay. Both the giving a gift from nature to somebody, and then if you could have a superpower, what would it be? And what would you do with it? What would you do? What's the first thing you would do with it? Mm -hmm. And maybe is there something you're afraid you might do with it, mm -hmm. or that might happen if you have it? Um. So let's and go. how are you going to handle that? And how are you going to handle that? <laughs> uh, you got to write through the whole story. There. Are you going to give the ring back, Gollum? <laughs> uh, so 
you're you're in the prison system uh you're meeting these 15 year old kids um you're seeing some some type of catharsis or light bulb go off in their heads was were you able to visibly see any type of change in them can you talk about that i felt like i saw them uh, several of them light up warm warmth that soften up uh even you know one of the just the funnest things is just to see the creative juices flow uh that lightens your mood just right there it's like wow how fun and um you know there were a few tears um from from them or uh you or both yeah right hide mine but yeah <laughs> they're um I, yeah I, that's what and, and the group got close the group got cohesive which was interesting because you know the kind of the vulnerability domino theory uh-huh yeah it's amazing in a support group when somebody sets the tone at the beginning of a meeting and they really lay it bare um I was um, in a meeting one night and I talked about um, having experienced incest and probably a third of the room um, shared things that they had never shared before exactly. about things that happened to them as as kids. Um, what would you say to the person who is listening to this interview and wants to say to you, how could you have such warm feelings towards those kids who, who for all you know in all likelihood had raped somebody and you had experienced that as a child and an adolescent well there was a reason why i didn't ask them what individually they had done i didn't I want see. to know that I didn't want to put the crime with the the person. I mean, I have to say, I remember being uncomfortable going to the bathroom there. I was a little nervous about the being there, but um, but I loved my kids. Uh, I grew really attached to them. They, you know. I think about a lot like there's a man that's alive that uh, was a very powerful director that did something appalling to me. And I think about it, he's in his 80s, and uh, he's he doesn't, I confronted him and there's no remorse. It's, I'm an old man, that's why I quit drinking, I don't remember anything. You know, no remorse. No, 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 no oh my God, I'm so sorry. Nothing like what? that, just. Kind of, and so I'm. I have anger, and yet, oh, there was. A, I saw a beautiful film the other night. There's. You got to look into just the human and the best in people. That's the only thing you can do because harboring the resentment doesn't serve you. Uh, they say if you point one finger forward, three point back at you. I also like the um 
the saying, uh, resentment is like uh, you swallow the poison and expect the other person to die. Exactly. Uh, so how do you r- reconcile, though, the difference between wanting to not be burdened by resentment for your whole life, but giving weight to what happened to you so you can process the anger and the sadness and the confusion and et cetera, et cetera. How? I think you have to do one before you get to the the feeling. I mean, that's why writing about it, working at therapy, doing any kind of art that where you're expressing yourself um, – and then you can forgive, you know, you, you, you need to tell the story first and experience your grief and then let go. You can't let go before you've been through the process of the grieving. I get really pissed when I hear people telling somebody you need to forgive somebody. For me, forgiveness is a byproduct that may or may not come. And it Mm -hmm. has its own schedule and telling somebody, you know, that's almost like shaming them for still processing something that, you know, it's like re-traumatizing somebody. I agree. I agree with you. Um, So share some more about um, working with, with these teenagers, if you can think of it. Were there times where you sensed that they were kind of, fiercely protective of you or um little bit i yeah. got to be mama i uh, i'll tell you what though working with i've worked with adults a lot too just regular you know population adults and uh what stories and what changes in their lives come about uh i i remember one person I know, uh, he's a film director and writer, and he had had writer's block. He was raised, he was, he was a child in Chile. He was Chilean. And when he was six years old, it was during the Pinochet regime. And they came and got his mother with, they came with dogs, the police, and took his mother away and left him and his four-year-old sister alone. And so he wrote about the night they came and got his mother and he'd never dealt with that. Wow. I'd never been in therapy. Anything cried. It was in a workshop with a group, and it was so touching. And then the next exercise he did was about the day his first child was born. And it was so joyous and so beautiful. And that next week, he wrote a script in a week, and really? he hasn't had writer's block since. Oh, my God. <laughs> Does it, it? Was it a coincidence that the soft thing came once the kind of the armor was off? No, I don't think so at all. I think that's... Kind of what happens. Yeah. But it was really wonderful to see those two. uh, And I've had people, I work on things like your atmosphere, the atmosphere you live in, the atmosphere you carry around with you, uh, and how you want your atmosphere to be like. You know, your whether it be your aura or your home or, you know, what we create for ourselves. And I've had people move <laughs> after exploring that and, you know, do some major life changes. That's why, I, I, you know, I was, I was doing 
you know, for a couple of years, I, I write novels, and uh, I also like to direct, so I was doing these little directing things and stuff, and I decided that this is the most fulfilling thing I want to do for the rest of my life, because I see it's time in life for me to really do something that's really contributing, and uh, I don't feel like I've, you know, given to society enough or whatever, or helped enough people, or, and uh, so it's something that just feels right to yeah, do. Yeah, I was going to say, but, it, but it also real. sounds like it's a, 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 a f- more of a feeling of purpose and passion than it is a, I got to do this out of guilt. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Talk about the importance no, of... No, it's not guilt at all. It's just like, well, it's time, you know, yeah. Talk about the, the importance of meaning and purpose in people's lives. Hmm. I talk about the good life and how you uh, how you conceive of what a good life is. And at different people's levels of development, that can be different. Like for a child, a good life is having a lot of candy. And, and an adult. <laughs> and but as I'm, you, I'm not naming names. <laughs> as you evolve, you know, it starts to be to have purpose and it, and there are different kinds of purpose at different stages in development. Um, your purpose, you know, at some stage could be to be very successful and make a lot of money. At another stage, it might be to you know, help with human trafficking or um, and, and what have you found in your encounters with people who have kind of gone through an arc of finding a changing motivating well, factor in their in their lives? Well, it is motivating. It gives you energy and stuff. Mm-hmm. When you really define your goals and dreams and purpose and start, you know, at, writing's really great for that, going through this you know, writing out the steps and taking baby step after baby step, working towards it. Baby you, steps are so important. That's another way to disarm black and white thinking. Mm-hmm. Break know? it down into... It just occurred to me the other day that, you know, I don't have to sit down and answer emails for four straight hours or completely ignore it for three days. I can do 10 at a time, a couple of times throughout the day. Exactly. And it was like a revelation <laughs> to me. And it's so it's so obvious to somebody that doesn't struggle with black and white thinking. But, uh-huh. but for those of us, uh, and I think people with addictive personalities in particular, um, it's so... It's so hard to see the black and white thinking sometimes because it's just um, become a part of our reality and our distorted view. Well, I'm always talking to writers who uh, are have writer's block or put it off or can't get the discipline and everything, and I say 10 minutes a day. Just write 10 minutes a day. If you do it consistently, one day that 10 minutes is going to turn into four hours. But you don't have to sit down to write, you know, two hours or four hours uh, to have discipline. 
And um, same with exercise. Um, I got away from running uh, a while back. I don't run anymore because it's hard on my knees, but I wanted to get back into it. And the thought of going and running three or four miles was like keeping me from doing it. And so I said, I'm just going to go around the block. Perfect. And it was five minutes. And it was like, because I knew I could do that. Uh-huh. And that Perfect. didn't fill me with dread. So maybe just adjust whatever that is until you feel the dread go away. Mm-hmm. And go do that. I like timers, too. Mm-hmm. Like for writing. Like a timer you can see because your phone shuts off. But so you know that I'm only, I might be writing about this painful thing, but I'm only going to do it for five minutes. So I'm not going to fall into a rabbit hole. Um, so what are what are some uh, tips or, you know, obviously I don't want you to uh, divulge all of your book. Uh, but what are okay. some things from the from the book that you could share with people about uh, writing? Obviously, we've done some already, but um, what, what else would you like to well, I do. Share with them. I have um, the the first few pages of the book um, is kind of academic. It's about the history of therapeutic writing and about therapeutic writing, and then the rest of it's a little memoir, a little folk wisdom. But basically, it's um, just the prose is just couching. It's just there to hold the exercises. Okay. So um, I did this kind of wacky um, framework. <laughs> I don't know where, why I got this idea, but I wanted to do it modi- uh, uh, the elements. So I used the elements as a metaphor, water, earth, uh, air, and fire, and body, mind, and spirit. And that those are the names of the chapters. Oh, I like that. Yes. Yeah. And so like, with water, I will discuss going with the flow, uh, trust, uh, tears. With the air, I discuss atmosphere, uh, spirituality. So I kind of discuss different uh, fire. I use anger, passion, creativity. Mm-hmm. Oh, I so like I just it. use those as metaphors mm-hmm. and talk just a little bit about each subject and then give exercises based on the subjects so give give us a a a couple um well i'm trying to think what one i can give with without being present i mean the one i really love that i start out with a lot is uh uh a free association exercise Mm -hmm. where i give you words like uh, Let's do it. Let's you and I do it. Okay, it's called I Remember. Okay. And you, you're going to write? Are you going to just do it on... Uh, I'd do- like to... Can I do it just saying it back to you? I don't think it'll work as well, but we can no. do it. Okay. I remember a uh, child. And then what do I do? You you just say the first thing that comes to your mind. Um, sand pail. I remember a... Item in the house of my grandmother. A figurine, a ceramic figurine that seemed pointless and always accompanied by the odd odor of her apartment. Not necessarily a bad odor, but just a grandmother odor. Rich. Yeah. A car. 
Volkswagen Beetle that my family had in 1972. And I remember the running board on the side of it and how I wanted to be able to have my cousin drive it down the street with me standing on the running board outside of it. But they, they, my parents were like, no, that's, that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. Wow. A uh, celebration dinner. Let's say a dinner, a, a holiday dinner. Um, well, the first thing that popped into my mind is that um, I'm having uh, some friends over because uh, I moved into a new place and they're uh, Thai. And one of them is uh, cooking Thai food for the rest of us. And so we went to the grocery store today and bought a shitload of food. (laughs) And so I'm looking, I'm looking forward to that. That's the first thing. But if, if it's going to be a a remember thing, um, the first thing that pops into my head is living at home, uh, being, you know, like a kid or adolescent and how long Christmas Eve dinner would take mm-hmm. because opening presents was on the other side of it. And it just seemed, just what watching everybody eat and thinking, oh my God, finish your food. And then just being so disappointed at how many dishes there were. And uh, yeah. And I, I just remember the feeling in the kitchen, like watching, you know, as as my mom would wipe the counter and dry her hands off, it would be like this excitement of okay, oh. it, that the time is here now. Rich, yeah. how about a, 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 a this is the last one an item a, a piece of jewelry or an item of clothing that you no longer have that you loved? Um, it was a ring that um, my ex-wife's sister gave to me um when i was suicidally depressed and it was a ring that said hope on it and if you watch some episodes of uh the tv show that i was on it was on my thumb i wore it on my thumb for about two years and when my meds finally started working at least fairly well and i wasn't thinking about suicide a hundred times a day um i took the ring off and but it it was good to look down and see that word hope um beautiful yeah beautiful and I'm eternally grateful for for her and it was also a, a reminder that people love you uh-huh and you're not the only one it's lovely it feels and in in a lot of ways that's kind of what the the podcast is 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 my way of trying to give people a hope a hope ring Oh, sweet. Yeah. So that's like, so I would do that and, you know, a list of those things, like 10 or 15 of them. And then you can see how rich it is. You've had some some, uh, great memories. And then I'd have you take one and expand upon it, like write a page about your grandmother's figurine or, and then you go into your grandmother's house and pretty soon you're... Remembering things that you haven't thought of in a long time. Processing them. I like it. Uh, Anything else you'd like to uh, share with me or the listener before we uh, wrap up? I just, uh, yes, I have one uh, uh, thing I will say that's my favorite thing in the world to do. I once called a woman 
uh, moaning and wanting her to listen to all my problems and tell me a solution. And she says, she didn't have time for it. She says, go outside and look up at the sky and smile. And you do that, and it just is the pause that refreshes. So when worse comes to worse, you go outside, look up at the sky, and smile. And I think that'll bring you up a notch. And would it be fair to say that that's when, when situationally you're not feeling too well as opposed to clinically depressed? Because uh, yes, if I, I were, guess so. If I were clinically depressed and somebody uh, told me that, um, I might be... My nose might be bent out of shape. Yes, uh, I guess I'm talking. I'm talking lightweight depression. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, Catastrophizing in our head, maybe. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah, I think with um, I always also with my writing program, I I really like it when people uh, are very seriously traumatized or depressed if they're seeing a therapist at the same time because the writing helps hurry the therapy along. The therapy helps the writing. But sometimes to do it unsupported isn't a great idea if you're if you're in really dire straits. Yeah. I mean, to do anything unsupported isn't a good idea if you're in bad shape. You yeah. need to reach out and get yeah. help. Yeah, it's almost like there's there's two branches of how you look at tackling something, and one branch is. Um, is this person in crisis and that's one set of things mm -hmm. like you know i'm i'm a believer that meds should be the last house on the block we should try everything else and if we're still struggling we should consider meds um but if somebody's in crisis and is like actively suicidal i go straight to i them. feel like yeah it, you know at least temporarily mm -hmm. um um Anything else? I can't think of anything. Well, your your book is called uh, Right for Recovery, Exercises for Heart, Mind, and Spirit. And uh, Diane, I really appreciate you uh, coming in and sharing all yeah, of this stuff with us. Yeah, visit my website and look at my workshops. We will. We'll put the links to all of that stuff uh, under the show notes for uh, for your episode. Terrific. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. I enjoyed talking to her. And the questions that I said I was going to create a survey out of, I just added those to the back in time survey. So uh, go check check those out. It'll be interesting to, to hear your guys' responses uh, to those questions. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living, as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive, a must-read for anyone in medicine from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include, what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, 
Pulitzer Prize finalist and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Let us dive into some surveys. This is from the Fears survey filled out by Cody and he writes, I'm a father of three, stay-at-home dad and a full-time student. I have a fear of being alone whether it be driving by myself or home by myself, it will, will result in a panic attack. I'm afraid that something terrible will happen when I'm by myself, such as a bad panic attack or something beyond my control that will affect me in some way. Thank you for sharing that. And it's interesting how people are so different because most of my fears come up when I'm outside of the house. That's not true. I'm afraid inside the house, but I've never, I'm never afraid because I'm by myself. I, I find something really soothing about being by myself. But, um, man, panic attacks can be a motherfucker. I only experienced one in my life, and, ooh, it was fucking brutal. And I was high on top of it. It had been. It was about, about a week after the Northridge earthquake here in Los Angeles, which was, in a word, horrifying. And uh, I was convinced that the next second there was going to be an even bigger, worse earthquake. And it was like my body was quivering, and it felt so real, so real. Did I give up pot? No, I didn't. <laughs> oh... This is an email I got from Karina, and she writes, I'm a sociable, lively, positive girl with versatile interests and an easy attitude to life. I like to create coziness and like to take care of others. Well, I got to tell you, Karina, and the subject line is a classy woman looking for F-U-B-U. You like to create coziness and take care of others, and... This was like a God shot to me because when I read this, I was lounging on a bed of pillows washing the feet of the elderly. And I thought, this sounds like my lady. She writes, I'm not ready for anything serious right this moment. Well, you haven't seen me in a blazer. I love to get pleasured, but I am not ready to be in a committed relationship. I don't know what I'm going to do to turn that attitude of yours around. Maybe it'll have something to do with your versatile interests or your lively positivity. Maybe your easy attitude to life. Anyways, she writes, in case you are interested, then inform me. And here's the part that just breaks my heart is she doesn't tell me how to inform her. I have no idea. Does she want a certified letter? Does she want one of those people that sticks you with a summons and then runs away? 
Maybe she wants an old prospector to just wander past her house on a mule. I hope I hear from her again. This is from the Fears survey filled out by older white guy. Hey, I think I know you. He writes, I fear that after 32 years, I'm leave, leaving my wife just as, she, and he's in his 50s. I, uh, I'm leaving my wife just as she enters the years she'll want or need a partner. She's 66. I am 58 and very healthy. She is quite healthy. I'm leaving her because she doesn't think she needs me. I work way too hard, and she shrugs that off as she is retired. She doesn't help much around the property, but thinks I should maintain it. It's a fucking ranch. She has money from her dad and a pension. I have no retirement money. I do construction and I'm tired. We have two kids, an ER doctor and a lawyer. They don't need me either. My fear, working until I'm dead. Any comments to make the podcast better? Talk about seasoned marriages coming to an end. <clears throat> well, there is a lot there to uh, unpack, as they say, and... I mean, it doesn't sound like there's a lot of intimacy in your relationship, and um, it can be really, really hard when you settle into a relationship and then it just slowly starts to not work. And, you know, it's lonely being single, but I think it can be even lonelier being in a relationship that's not working and just feeling a sense of the life unlived. And not knowing what to do. You know, the fear of maybe being alone or making the wrong decision or not being able to survive or feeling guilt. Worried that you're going to lose friends or what they're going to think. And thank you for, uh, for sharing that older white guy. This is from the racism survey filled out by Anita. And uh, she's mixed white slash slash Asian. Uh, she's in her 50s, and she writes, My earliest childhood memories were of being made to feel different. I was born in Japan to a Japanese father and Japanese mother. I didn't go to parks because kids would bully me and or chase me away. My own cousins would do this. My aunts and uncles always tested me as I wonder if she meant treated me as different. If I did something bad, it was because I was an American. If I did something good, it was proof I had a little bit of Japanese blood. My mother divorced my father when I was seven and left Japan. She hates still to this day everything about Japan and raised us to be, quote, white. She shamed us for wanting to speak Japanese or like anything that had to do with Japan. I moved to Europe as an adult, and it was the first time in my life I was seen as Japanese. Here, no one could see the American in me and insisted on talking about Japan. I had left as a child and didn't know much, but they insisted. I was offered chopsticks in more than one a dining occasion. Oh, my God. Do you remember how you felt when it happened? Confused. How do you feel about it now? It doesn't bother me much. I resent the emotional trauma I received because of it as a child, especially by my own parents and extended family. Now I can laugh at racial jokes and play with the idea that I'm simultaneously both and neither, often choosing one or the other when it suits me. Any thoughts or feelings you'd like to share? 
Racially and culturally mixed people are often pushed to one side or the other. The mixed person themselves often choose a side as it can make life easier. However, we are the vital connection between the two sides. Our experience of being both can give us valuable insight into ways of thinking and the ability to understand from both outside looking in and vice versa. We're able to translate and interpret each side to the other, enabling better communication. We are an essential glue to the human race and yet are pushed away for being different everywhere we go. Racism sucks. Thank you for that. That was really... uh, eye-opening that 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 last paragraph about how you can translate and interpret uh, and enable better communication thank you for sharing that this is from the love survey filled out by plant destroyer and they write i love making a den and gaming for a few hours i love when i cook something that's actually really good i love meeting someone and clicking I love looking at my body and seeing the artwork I've covered it in. I love seeing my horse waiting for me to give her a carrot when I arrive at the stable. I love getting into a warm bath when I'm achy and tired. I love finishing work for the weekend on top of my to-do list. Mm, That is a great feeling, finishing the to-do list. It's one of the few things that quiets the part of my brain that tells me that I don't do enough. Thank you for sharing that. This is from the Fears survey filled out by Anxious J. And she writes, I'm afraid that I will not be able to support myself financially or otherwise as I mature, or even worse, that because of this fear, I will not try hard enough to become self-sufficient. And as a result, I will give up and settle down with a partner solely to have the stability and security. This would mean I would never reach my full potential in life and would remain reliant on a man potentially forever. I'm plagued by this fear a lot recently as I was just broken up with a few weeks ago by the man I thought I would marry and already I'm looking back and realizing how much he took advantage of my submissive and empathetic nature. I either could not see this or chose not to see it during the relationship because I was getting comfortable. I believe I'm susceptible to narcissistic partners due to being raised by a covert narcissist, which only heightens the fear that I will never be able to have both a healthy relationship and self-fulfillment. Therefore, I will choose, I will have to choose one or the other. Well, the good news is, is you are only 23 and, you know, I, I think it's so easy when a relationship doesn't work out for us to look at it or any experience. It doesn't, quote unquote, work out for us to look at it as a failure or a waste of time. But I think if we can understand the difference between uh, obsessing and just dwelling on something and looking back with insight and saying, what can I glean from this and move forward, uh, then I think a lot of those experiences can help us in the future because so much of life to me is less about discovering what we like and more about letting go of the things that aren't serving us anymore, the things that we feel like, oh, I should be this way. Why don't I like this? Why don't I do this? You know, um, Accepting the parts of ourselves that, uh, that don't really need to be changed and then finding out what, what can I do to change the parts of us that, that could use some work on them. Thank you for sharing that. This is from the love survey filled out by M. Christopher. 
D, and he writes, laying down in a freshly laundered and made bed after being on a dry streak, in the parentheses, nocturnal enuresis. I think that means um, wetting the bed. And knowing my chances of waking up dry are greater than usual. Thank you for that one. It's amazing how many things we take for granted. You know, it never, never occurs to me when I go to bed that I might wet the bed. And it's... It sounds like such a cliche, but um, there's so much of our health that we we take for granted. Uh, I never experienced the functionality of my knees until you know the last year when I've had to skip so many times playing hockey because my knees hurt or or it hurts to go up and down stairs. Uh, this is from the racism survey filled out by Cold Chowder and. Uh, What's your rather ethnicity, Asian or Asian-American? When the pandemic lockdown first occurred in March, I would walk around my hometown neighborhood in the suburbs. Many of my neighbors drive pickup trucks. While I was walking, many pickup drivers, all white men, would see me speed up and drive as close to me as possible. I'm pretty certain this only happened to me because I'm Asian. I never saw it happen to the white pedestrians, and this never happened to me in the past. I was 22 at the time. You remember how you felt when it happened? I felt annoyed because I was a harmless pedestrian. I couldn't believe how often it happened, and I wondered if these men were from the same family. I found it funny. These are grown men in pickup trucks, and I'm a petite five-foot woman. They tried incredibly hard to intimidate me, but they didn't even have the courage to step out of their truck to do it. I thought they were pathetic, and I really hoped that this didn't happen to anyone else. How do you feel about it now? I still can't believe how people are blaming, threatening, and harming innocent Asians due to the pandemic. I still laugh at how pathetic those men reacted to a mere pedestrian. Thank you for sharing that. And uh, I I love your attitude, man. I really... You sound like a... A strong, confident person, which begs the question, what the fuck are you doing listening to this podcast? (laughs) This is from the love survey filled out by, it's 3 a.m., I must be lonely. And they write, I love squeezing my cat's paws and feeling his warm little jelly bean toes. He has fur between his toes, which gives me an extra little bit of joy, but I'm not sure why. Oh, I totally get that one. Gracie, who's not a cat, but a dog, I love when I'm when I'm just being affectionate with her and I'll just start like I don't know, petting her paws and then I oh, this sounds so gross, but I put my finger in between the pads of her paws and that's it's like this little this little cave that uh, and it and it kind of spreads her paws apart and it's it's uh I don't know. Is that creepy? This is from the fear survey filled out by G. And he writes, I fear that I can never love someone or let them love me. G, you have just boiled the podcast down to one sentence. You have just boiled our struggle to be a human being down to one sentence. And I salute you. Thank you for that. 
This is a survey filled out by Cold Chowder. They're uh, filling out a bunch of surveys. I love the first bite of food after not eating all day due to constantly working. I love the way my partner's eyes fill with love when we wake up next to each other. I love experiencing the world fully, and I feel in sync with my senses. In a sense where I can feel the wind, listen to its soft breeze, feel the warmth of the sun hit me, and truly connect with the world around me as a united collection. I love nature hikes and finding random bugs and birds. I love delving into a long conversation with a stranger I just met at a party. I love dancing and not caring about who's watching. I love dancing around others who aren't dancing just to encourage them to dance a little more. Those are great. Boy, some of those are so just foreign to me. Dancing and not caring about who's watching. I don't know if I've ever danced and not cared about who is watching. Sober. Drunk, I know. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by Maximo Culpa. He identifies as pansexual. He's 24. He was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. I would say a chaotic environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. I would say it counts. He writes, covert incest. My dad would grab my ass as I walked past him in the house, even after I asked him to stop. That right there, straight up sexual violation. Whether it's sexual to your dad or not, uh, it, it is a, it is a form of, of aggression. He would play it off as a joke, like we were on a baseball team or some shit. This went on into my teen years. When I was eight or nine, he told me and my brother the reason he liked my mom was because she had a big butt. I still feel sick thinking about that. My mother has always made me, has always made creepy but plausibly deniable comments about my body. You look good with body hair. I like those jeans, etc., and frequently walking around the house with little clothing. Man, you you were raised in like a textbook covertly incestuous environment. He's been physically abused and emotionally abused. My dad was rarely around, and when he was, it was terrifying. The smallest things would set him off into a spitting rage, and no one knew how to get him out of it. When my brothers and I were upset as little kids, he would respond with threats of violence. I'll give you something to cry about. He was also obsessed with little rituals like Catholic mass and proper table etiquette. He made sure we sat around the dinner table almost every night, criticizing us for holding the fork in the wrong hand and condescending my mom until she would leave in tears. When things got hard for us financially and the, quote, good dad days were few and far between my brothers and I avoided him as best we could. This only made him more angry. His narcissistic toxicity blinded him to the fact that he drove his own family away. My mom used food as her primary coping mechanism and transferred this complex to all her children. My three siblings and I were raised in severe obesity. I weighed 300 pounds at 13. We were never taught how to be physically healthy. I developed an eating disorder in high school, which I hid very poorly. I'm almost certain my parents knew I was bulimic and that they chose to turn a blind eye. This feels like a form of abuse or at least severe neglect. I remember being so ashamed to be seen by anyone for most of my life. 
I still struggle with my weight, physique, and nutrition after being obese for two decades, and my body dysmorphia has kept me from enjoying my teens and early 20s. In both cases, I spent my childhood and adolescence worrying about the moods and mental well-being of my parents and trying to figure out why I always felt scared and ashamed. Any positive experiences with the abusers? Sure, my parents have good senses of humor and we can make each other laugh easily. Both my dad and my mom have mellowed with age, which is great for my youngest sibling, but it makes it much harder to resent them as much as I do. I'm jealous my sister will have a more stable childhood than I did, and I'm angry that my rage and resentments from childhood will not be seen as justified since, quote, they are all better now. You know, I think the the mission there is for for you to validate them to yourself and to process them. You know, they're, they're, for a lot of us, we will never get the satisfaction of somebody who abused us taking ownership of it and truly apologizing and changing their ways. But what we can do is stop looking for other people to validate our pain before we can validate it ourselves. But, you know, obviously easier said than done. Darkest thoughts, vivid, violent fantasies towards loud, aggressive men. If I see a guy yelling at his girlfriend in public or harassing strangers, I think about rushing him, taking him to the ground and beating him to death with my fists. I imagine driving my thumbs into his eyes and hearing him scream as warm blood covers my hands. Sometimes I catch myself daydreaming at length about elaborate kidnapping and torture scenarios involving abusers or predators. In my fantasy, I find myself delighting in their agony and fear. These sadistic fantasies give me a rush of adrenaline that grows the longer I think about it, and they make me question my humanity every day. I worry there is something seriously, irreparably wrong with me. Well, I think there is a big difference between thinking about those things and doing those things. And if it feels like, if it doesn't feel like you are creeping closer to doing that in real life, maybe it's time to give yourself a break and and maybe look into processing some of that some of that anger darkest secrets i suspect i was molested as a young child you were you you described your dad grabbing your ass after you asked him not to do that that is that is unwanted sexual touch My earliest memory is of being in preschool playing with naked Barbie dolls, taking one or two under a blanket and feeling up their tiny plastic bodies with my fingers. I don't really remember anything before this. In some strange way, I really hope I was acting out something that was done to me. The idea of that behavior being organic to me is truly horrifying. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Overpowering and dominating my partner. Keeping a sub is a slave slash pet. Humiliating someone who loves being humiliated. Age play, daddy-daughter stuff, consensual non-consent. I used to be ashamed of these, but after meeting other people who shared these fantasies and actually wanted to act them out with me, I'm very comfortable in talking about them. The consent and enthusiasm of my partner is actually my biggest turn-on. Strangely, at the same time, I also fantasize a lot about emotional intimacy. In spite of all my sadistic paraphilias, the idea of having sex with someone with whom I have a deep emotional connection is frequently in my mind. 
thank you for sharing that. I'm glad you don't have um, shame about that and that you uh, have found an outlet for it that's consensual. And, and I think that's a form of intimacy, you know, letting somebody see the parts of us that, that we struggle with, even though we're not hurting anybody. That, that can be a, a, a form of um, letting somebody in that can be really deep and profound. So kudos to you, man. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would explain to my parents at length exactly why they failed at being parents, and that's why they should please leave me alone. I would tell my mom to stop eating her feelings and go to therapy before she ruins her daughter's childhood, too. I hardly ever tell my mom how I really feel because she's so emotionally fragile. I wish I could tell my dad that I don't love him, that I always hated it when people said we looked alike. I want to tell him how hard I now have to work in spite of all his so-called parenting so I don't become a miserable fucking loser like him. I wish I could say all this, partially because I want to hurt my dad the way he hurt all of us, and partially in the hopes that he might actually listen. He never listens. What, if anything, do you wish for? A body that isn't flabby. Money to buy all the things I never had. A car and a house that shows everyone I'm a fucking big deal. I wish I was born to a better family. I wish I had the confidence to do what I want. I wish I knew how to love the right people the right way. I wish I wasn't so afraid all the time. I wish I could sleep through the night. Have you shared these things with others? Some things. I'm far more comfortable talking about my sexual fantasies than anything else. But fears and my violent fantasies I only discuss with a therapist. It's really hard for me to be vulnerable around anyone. But the nature of the therapeutic relationship doctor-patient confidentiality and paying for emotional labor makes me feel better. How do you feel after writing these things down? A little better. After reading my own answers, I cried for the first time in months. I feel like a real person. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Get on Medicaid, fix your teeth, see a therapist, do whatever you need to get well. Stop listening to what other people say you should do. You have a compass in your soul, and you're the only one who knows which way it points. Thank you so much for that, man. That, that Your survey really moved me, and you sound like a really, really sweet soul, and I'm sorry that you are, that you are struggling. Um, but, you know, as I've, as I've said many times on this podcast, there, there is help and there is hope out there. It just involves us trying something different. But it's, it's awesome that you're in therapy. And um, thanks for sharing that, buddy. This is from the Love Survey filled out by CJ. And they write, I love waking up to a clean kitchen. I love when you're in a rush and the traffic light gods decide that tonight is your night and you're going to make that green. I love getting to the gas station only to realize that the price of gas dropped since you last filled up. I love when, as a young kid, my mom used to put my bath towel in the dryer to warm it up for me before I got out. It's one of my fondest memories and I hope to do that for my kids one day. It is such a beautiful gesture. On that note, I love when you show a kid something completely mundane about adult life and it blows their mind. I love when a dog is pretending that they don't notice you, but in reality, their tail is wagging like crazy, totally giving them away. I don't know if I've ever seen that. 
Uh, I love when my dog pretends to hide. He thinks that if he can't see me, I can't see him. I got to assume that he did. He chewed something. I love getting into a shower after someone else worrying there won't be enough hot water only to find out that there's so much you should really be worrying about not scalding yourself. I love that 5 p.m. golden hour light. Everything feels okay when the sun is shining in my house like that. Oh, those are awesome. Thank you for those. This is from the Fears survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Code Dog Pendant. And she writes, I fear that my chronic pain, uh, and in parentheses, rheumatoid slash PMR, will accelerate rapidly. I won't be able to continue working in my physical job, and I'll just be a pile of bloody, gnarled stumps. I won't be able to manage my house and my beloved dog. My hands will be too arthritic to tie a knot if I eventually need to hang myself. Oh, that is so dark. It is so dark. And I relate to some of that, you know, having rheumatoid arthritis and, you know, my joints starting to wander. Um, but man, we can't, we can't just stay looking at that crystal ball because it's just, it's no way to live. It is no way to live. And there's beauty all around us, um, mixed in with the pain and the loss and, fear and all that stuff um sending you some love and maybe somebody will come up with an app if you're for people with arthritis that want to tie a noose noosey goosey is that is that what we'll call it oh my god Uh, And finally, this is a happy moment filled out by Lily Bean, and she's 22. She writes, I had the same psychiatrist from 13 to 22. I was always given care for anxiety and depression, and both of which were treatment-resistant, and every antidepressant they put me on exacerbated my suicidal ideations. I recently made the switch to a different care provider uh, where I'm able to see two different doctors, one for psychiatry and one for therapy. Not too long after onboarding with them, they were confident that I have bipolar 2 disorder. They immediately changed my medication regimen and therapy style. I've been going to therapy since I was 8, and not until I was 22 years old did someone suggest that I'm bipolar, despite the family history of bipolar disorder. I feel like these doctors finally see me and are creating a program to help me heal and not just collect my money. It was so hard to leave my psychiatrist because she was the first psychiatrist I had, and it was hard coming to terms with the fact that she was not able to fully help. I cannot express the excitement I have for my future. I went from being hospitalized every year for suicide attempts to being bright and optimistic about healing. I can feel the light inside me. I have hope for myself for the first time ever. I feel human. I feel heard. I feel like people care about me. I hope that anyone who feels stuck considers searching for a new care regimen. Discuss it with your current practitioner, but change is necessary for growth. I was horrified to leave my psychiatrist. I felt scared about leaving her and losing any and all progress I had made, as well as terrified of losing someone who knew so much about me and grew with me. Now that I have a team of doctors on my side, I do not feel guilt or longing for my old doctor. She was a resource that kept me somewhat grounded for several years and gave me an outlet, but my new doctors make me feel my worth. 
I can see that they care about me. They take notes. They ask questions about things. I forgot that they told me. They send me emails with articles that interest me. They send me books to read, give me take-home exercises. They give me advice about my psychology degree. This is something I deal with my entire life, and I finally feel a connection with my diagnosis. I feel like I have an identity and can understand in technical terms why my emotions and mental health are the way they are. I'm no longer ashamed of not being, quote, normal. This is my normal, and I love it. I'm enjoying the journey, and I'm forever grateful for the jump I made and the risk. Wow. Wow. Fuck. I love reading stuff like that. I just love it. And a little part of me is jealous. I'm going to be honest, Lily Bean. There's a little part of me that's like, you know, Lily Bean can go fuck herself. She can get on a bumper car and take it straight to hell. But the majority of me, very excited for you. Well, I hope you guys got something out of this episode. And uh, if you're out there and you're, and you're struggling, just never forget that uh, you are not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.